We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. When someone decides that they would like to become an architect, one of the first things that they learn is that it takes a very long time to become one. The average time someone spends studying architecture in Australia is five years, and they spend that time learning about design processes that develop the best ideas, the history and theories behind the architecture of the past, and the building methods, systems and processes required to turn architectural documentation into a built object. But the pathway of learning architecture is not always a straight track. Over the next three episodes, we're going to be speaking with built environment professionals involved in architectural education, and we're going to explore how prospective students, current students, and graduates of architecture engage with the learning of architecture. Our guests in this episode are registered architects and educators, Lindsay and Kerry Clare. Lindsay and Kerry are directors of the award-winning practice Clare Design based in Queensland and in 2010 won the Australian Institute of Architects highest honour the gold medal, particularly for their work in the advancement of architecture. Lindsay and Kerry share the story of the organic opening of their office, the way they like to educate by doing, and also share how a student can extend on the experience outside of university hours. I'll now hand over to Nicole Mosqueda-Mendez, who is the 2022 National Sonar President based in Queensland. Let's jump in. There are various interpretations of what the role of an architect is throughout popular culture. Thus, when students begin their journey in architecture, many are left with the question, what is the value of being an architect and how can an architectural education help me? I'm Nicole Mosquita-Mendes, SONA National President, and in this episode of Hearing Architecture, we will be talking with Lindsay and Kerry Clare about beginning an architectural education. After working as students with Gabrielle Poole in the early 1970s, Lindsay and Kerry established Clare Design. Since then, they have produced architectural projects ranging from individual residences to significant multi-residential and public projects across Australia. Their work is consistently acknowledged for its design solutions and environmental performance. In 2010, they received the Royal Australian Institute of Architects Gold Medal for their contribution to architecture and the profession. Hi, Lindsay and Kerry. Thank you for being part of the podcast. Hi, Nicole. Hi, Nicole. You have both dedicated your lives to studying, practicing and teaching architecture. Why did you both decide to pursue this path? I think uh, for me... At high school, I had a very good art teacher, uh, a quite well-known Australian watercolourist called Rex Backhouse-Smith, and I had him as a teacher for five years uh, up until the age of 16 when I matriculated. But in those teachings, he taught a lot about the light in the Australian landscape and the lightness. He was a fantastic watercolourist, but he also taught about sculpture and architecture and somehow through a sort of a convoluted path after trying another course, I ended up starting to study architecture, but I did a course part-time and um, I had a job with Gabriel Poole on the Sunshine Coast. So 
So my education was sort of part QUT and part almost being an, an apprentice to someone like Gabriel at the time. You think that combination of part-time study and part-time work was beneficial for you? Well, I think it was for me because he was, um, I, was I always describe it, the relationship as tough love in the sense that um, he, he really did throw you in the deep end and expect you to do things that I know that I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, do that to a student. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he taught me a lot, but it entirely depends on the quality of that person and what they were doing. So, I mean, if you were, if you call it a master and apprentice situation, having a good master helps. What about you, Kerry? What informed your decision to pursue this path? I don't really know that there was any particular moment, but when I was in primary school, my father commissioned an architect to design a showroom and a workshop for him. And um, I think that building had an effect on me. It was uh, quite a modern building and the the tectonics was interesting, the steel construction, the stack bond block work. It was a very raw little building and I think that that had an effect on me and um, when I went to high school when I was thinking about my career I actually wanted to be a builder (laughs) because I became I became interested in how buildings are put together and I suppose when I finished high school I was uh, looking to work in the for a builder but they um, there was no interest in having me on site carrying blocks and pieces of timber so <laughs> so um, I decided to learn how to put buildings together you know separately and then when I went to Queensland I got a job with Gabriel Poole and met Lindsay and met, Lindsay convinced me that I should be doing architecture. Oh <laughs> so throughout both of your journeys, were there any parts that you found particularly exciting or particularly formative? I think um, looking back, we never really even intended to start a practice. That was almost accidental. Well, it was accidental because Gabriel Poole had left the area and we were working for another practice and a wonderful Scottish doctor approached us to do a house. He had heard that we had worked for Gabriel for quite a long period of time. And so, yeah, we had this house and then the firm we were working with, we took it to that firm and they decided they didn't want to do houses but they had been asked to do a house so they gave that to us as well. So we had two houses and all of a sudden we had an office and and Kerry bought two doors and edge stripped and painted them. We hung a few of our QUT drawings up on the wall and we had an office. That was pretty exciting. And the only thing we didn't have was a telephone and we had to uh, use the public telephone up the street for the first five weeks. That was um, an unusual way. Someone asked us about our, our business plan. That was it, you know, getting a lot of coins to get the get to the public telephone. Anyway, that was they were exciting times and we, we didn't have any idea about how to run a business or carry motor, but I certainly didn't. And... We, we also then, someone engaged us to do a small block of eight apartments and then we had another house in Brisbane and before we knew it, we had four or five people working for us in the first year. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty exciting but it was also very scary. 
And then I, th- I suppose in terms of and if you, you asked the question about what was exciting, within a year or two we started getting some re- recognition of those, of those houses in terms of publication or awards and things like that. And for a young practice, it's just so helpful to almost reassuring that someone might have thought that the projects were worthwhile or had some other relevance, don't you think, Kerry? Absolutely. And I think the other exciting thing at that time was just that, you know, the whole um, architecture of the world was fascinating to us, you know, Japanese architecture, Finnish architecture, and and we were interested to travel. And the good thing about travel is you learn so much about other cultures and how their built form responds to that and their urban situations or rural situations, etc. So, I mean, architecture for us was, um, you know, it's all-encompassing. It's it's just becomes the basis of everything, holidays, research, <laughs> <laughs> teaching, work. <laughs> yeah, there's no separation really. It's more or less a full-time thing, you know, sort of, it's like you being a student, you know, working as a student, night times, day times, weekends all become a bit of a blur. Mm. It sort of keeps you on your toes all the time. I guess on that point, some might argue that that creates like an unhealthy work-life balance. How do you think you've been able to sustain sort of like having architecture encompass every aspect of your life for such a long period of time? I think we've woven it all together haven't we <laughs> I mean we've raised family we've you know we've gone on holidays etc so I think it is hard to get a balance with architecture because when something is being designed and documented and then it goes into being built there's a commitment there and you have to you you either are committed to the whole project which Lindsay and I you know, that's that's the basis of being commissioned on a project. So, yes, it is hard to get those breaks, that's, that's for sure. But I think that an important thing between the two of us is that we sort of understand when the other one of us has had enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think whilst we sort of work well together and that's the, you know, that was how we sort of started, that's how, how it was when we met. It was a working relationship. But we also understand that, both of us can get to a point where we need a break. So it's not just, just that it's not formal. It's not nine to five. It's sort of if we need a break at you know, one afternoon and nothing's pressing, we'll just take it. Yeah. And if we need to do something on a weekend or a night because we have to, then we just do it and work it out some other way. And it's not a perfect world. And it swings sometimes one way or the other a little, but we've managed to manage it. Do you think that flexibility comes from owning your own practice and kind of having that autonomy? Or was it a similar case when you were working for other people? Well, I think so. I think um, having our own practice is good or bad. You know, we can sort of determine the hours we work, but then again, you've got a lot of responsibility. But we have always encourage people working with us to take time off if there's a deadline and you work to that deadline and well then after that you should be able to have equal time off so Mm. always try to be uh, reasonable in that regard yeah 
Well, thank you for explaining that. I know it went a little bit off topic. You, from what you've said so far about your journey beginning architecture, it seems to have arisen quite organically. And I'm sure that there was a lot of sort of effort and I don't want to say hardship, but persistence throughout this journey. Would you mind sharing some of the challenges you might have faced when you first started out? Well, I think uh, one of the major challenges was that we were in a small region, a regional practice, and the work was sort of patchy because of ups and downs of the the building industry. And we found that uh, quite difficult to manage because you had we had really good staff and to uh, give them continuity of employment, we had to have continuity of work. So it was a, a constant problem for us back in the 80s and early 90s. And also, I suppose, as a young practice, we tend to sort of end up doing a lot of houses and alterations, that sort of work. I mean, unless you're really well connected in some other way you know, or have have parents that are well connected in some other way, which does tend to happen. I'm not being critical of that. So we had to start off just doing bits and pieces and then trying to get public work because we always felt that we would like to deal with end-user clients, that we would be dealing with something where you knew the people that were going to be occupying and using the project. And to get that as a young practice was very difficult because, you know, we were young. Um, so that sort of lack of credibility was particularly hard. And managing finances and systems and how people did things in the office. I mean, all of a sudden, you're responsible for their livelihood, you know, their family. You're responsible to the client to make sure that you, as the architect, agree with everything that's drawn by all the various people in your office and you can defend it. Even so, that's you know, a hard thing because people have their own ways and methods of doing things. So you have to sort of, it's like guiding a ship, I suppose. You have to sort of set the direction and, and make sure that everyone contributes in the right way. And you're not trained for that. I mean, you, you, you have situations in the university where you do collaborate with other students and sometimes you're with a, a group that you get on with and sometimes you're with a group that you think that might be a bit strange or a bit different to you. And um, that's a good challenge, isn't it, you know? So somehow all those things come together in some way when you start a practice. And then, of course, you have clients that, well, let's just say for house clients, some house clients would walk in with nothing and you'd have to sort of get information from them and other clients would come in with a little encyclopedia of everything that they wanted and you had to wade through that and sort of sort it out. So all those things, you know. Plus dealing with builders and tradesmen, setting up all the contracts. So it, it, it's a learning process and it's, it is challenging. And, and I suppose we were lucky that we did have that part-time experience all through our course. And for me particularly, I know Kerry didn't, even though she wanted to be a builder, I probably, had, I probably tried to be because I had to because when I was in the early years of Gabriel's office, he would have work but then he would run out of work. And so I'd become the labourer on a job. I wasn't very good at it, but it was really good for me to understand how people on the site were interpreting drawings. I was the labourer on the job that I just drew. And so, you know, that was challenging. So 
when you were faced with these challenges, and I'm assuming that it was these were kind of consistent things that may have come up throughout your career, for instance, like the shortage of work or communicating with a variety of stakeholders, have you developed strategies to make these challenges a little bit easier to face? I think we were lucky in the early part that we did have mentors that we could talk to, that is, architects that were friends who were older and when things were difficult, we could always pick up the phone and say, what do you think would happen here or what? And and also the people in our office, there were we were very fortunate that a number of the people that we went through the course with had joined us and they had different skills. So between us, we sort of learned a little bit on the run. And as you age or get older and having made a few mistakes and things that you wish you hadn't done, you start to realise, you know, things that you don't do, I suppose, the things you might say no to, it can become clearer. But it's always uh, one of the nice things about the profession is that there's always, there's always challenges. Yeah, I think on the um, Sunshine Coast where we were, it was a fairly collegiate um, sort of atmosphere. We all did the small practices did sort of share information and the Institute certainly helped us a lot with their professional practice and building notes or whatever. Practice, um, yeah, they had practice notes. They had practice notes and also information on construction and contracts, etc. So we did get a lot of help in that way and I think that's really important that anybody starting out just realises there's a whole body of knowledge already in the industry and that they, they need to just approach an architect and and talk through some of the issues. And can I just add, the other thing that we learned from Gabriel's office was there's also a wealth of knowledge in the building industry and the tradesmen. And on the Sunshine Coast, there were particularly good tradesmen. And from Gabriel, we learned that being able to communicate well with them about how things are made or how you might achieve something was incredibly valuable. I guess like as a student starting out, it's quite reassuring to hear that there is this community support for people who are emerging throughout the profession. So given that you also spend a lot of your time in education, why did you decide to make that a key part of your timetable? I think that um, even if you're running an office, it is important to pass on your knowledge or you know, the mistakes that you've made, etc. because uh, architecture is a profession where you learn by doing and education is just an extension of, of having staff and students in your office and I think it's hugely important that practising architects are engaged in educating up-and-coming students because it's not a profession that you can learn entirely through theory, <laughs> as you would know. But I think in education, my view is that there's, there, needs, there needs to be a balance between academia and people undertaking research and, and looking at theory and history um, and people that have actually done things and, and, and made mistakes and errors and confronted things that they've built you know, <laughs> and realised that things hadn't worked out or they did work out better than they thought, all those sort of things together. So, look, our role has been very simple in education. We've just been asked to attend various universities 
and we don't get involved so much in the, in the politics of the administration or the, uh, the position the university might take. When we come to a university, our role is really just to sort of help students. And we obviously engage with the staff who have prepared some sort of problem for students to look at or some sort of project. And sometimes we have input into that, which is good. But really then our role is just simply to be there and help out as best we can with the knowledge that we have. Well, I always think that if you can help any student think about something in a better way, if we, if we can help, that's a good thing for the future. Definitely. And I guess like any other career, the path to becoming an architect starts with this formative education. Reflecting on your education, what do you think the biggest learning you took away from it was? We, we studied part-time. So I think the, some of the education that had the most effect on me was there was some classes on sort of urban design, which I really enjoyed because it wasn't just about a building, it's about a, a network, it's an environment, it's an extension, it, it takes into account social issues and cultural issues and I found that hugely interesting. And then on practical side, we were working for Gabriel as students. So we had that education as well as the sort of theory and we had technical drawing and <laughs> what else do we have? I <laughs> can't remember now. It's a long time ago. But I think universities and um, can open students' eyes to a lot of aspects of architecture, but also I think it's really worthy for students to have some time in an office during their study because there's nothing that um, beats sort of that hands-on practical experience and seeing how an office runs and, and uh, how projects progress through the, the whole system and into construction. <laughs> You're seeing how things that you've drawn that you thought would work somehow don't <laughs> or don't work in the way that you might have intended I mean, the greatest thing that happened sort of in Gable's office was you could get sort of fairly self-confident in terms of producing a design or a drawing working with someone like Gabriel, but then walking onto a building site and having a wise old builder ask you a question or something, and then he asks you another question, like a game of chess, and then he says at the end, well, what happens over here then? And you look at it and go, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> But <laughs> banging your brain explosion because you don't know, you haven't sorted that out. And those sort of things, that doesn't happen unless you actually have that, that experience. And so that's a, just a necessary part of, of sort of learning to think three-dimensionally but also learning to think three-dimensionally in terms of the nature of materials and how they go together uh, in reality is, is something that's... Um, and, and experiencing scale, you know, you draw something, you get very absorbed in the drawing and once it's built, you, you, it might be a totally different um, spatial experience to what you imagine and that's something that you learn only from making and doing. But I also think that Gabriel taught us something when I, was a, when I remember being a student working in his office and then after maybe two or three or three or four years we had at QUT, an experience where they took us on a field trip to visit a whole lot of other architectural design buildings. And there were some very accomplished buildings there, but by and large, with few exceptions, I found that Gabriel's buildings had a sort of a greater, uh, I call it life in the building, 
that they weren't just well composed or they weren't just beautifully resolved or sorted. They they had something in the in the three dimensional relationships that you couldn't see on the drawing or in a photograph. And this is something that then for Kerry and I, after we started practice, we went on our first overseas trip to look at some works that we thought were interesting. And we found that some works that we thought were interesting were as good as the photograph, but not much better. And other works we saw were so much more compelling and rich in the, the experience of the building, both in and around the building. And so that's something that really stayed with us, uh, somehow that understanding of how a building is made and how it feels in reality as a, to occupy. And so that led us to then start doing a, probably a further study beyond our studies where we studied the work of Scandinavian architects and particularly Arbor Alto, Gunnar Asplund and Ralph Erskine and visited a lot of their projects because of those, the reasons that they were so rich and compelling in the, in the experience. I feel like this is a much larger question, but what do you think the kind of key elements that distinguished a sort of ordinary building to a building that was so rich and compelling were? Well, some buildings should just be ordinary. I mean, some buildings, I don't mean that in a negative sense. I mean, within a, as Kerry talked about urban design, there you can't have every building being rich and compelling and buying for attention. You know, you have streets where there's responsibility for things to happen and there are moments where things need to be accentuated or, or brought out. And I think the best example that I can think of of that is the architecture of Jorn Utzon, who in designing the Sydney Opera House knew that the building sitting in the harbour had to be more than just an opera house because of the compelling nature of the site. But in the same era that he designed that, he also designed the Friedensborg housing in Denmark, which by comparison is very much understated, a living place for seniors. And yet over the period of time, both, you could say, are relatively timeless. They're both still visiting them today. They are both beautiful experiences. One is much more understated and quiet, whereas the other is you know, far more evocative. So you have to know when to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, something that we learnt through our, through our studies beyond the course. I think we've learnt to edit our work fairly heavily because you know, you, you, you're always trying to pair it back to the essential things that will create that spirit or place or that um, unexpected, you know, sort of joyousness or whatever without too much fuss or overuse of materials or you have to think of the environment and embodied energy and all those things as well. So I think, I think we work hard to not overstate projects I think there's some really interesting points. So, so far we've kind of spoken about the skills or the techniques that go into, I guess, being a good architect um, and producing good architecture. But I think it would be interesting to get your opinions on what you think the overarching role of an architect is. To improve the quality of people's lives. I think that's perfect. <laughs> in, a, in a long-term sense, not, you know, not with an eye on um, not sustainability but responsible 
approaches to, to environmental impacts, etc. So how do you think the architect achieves this? I think that you have to think more broadly beyond your project every time. And, you know, we always say a building has many lives and might be designing it for one particular use, but you've got to think if this building stands for 150 years, it's going to be used by many different people for many different things. So I think that you find your cues for that from the climate. If you if you design a building to work well now uh, with natural light and ventilation, etc., it will work in 150 years, I would imagine. And if it works well for people... As far as well-being, you know, uh, indoor-outdoor, vistas, all those things that provide human comfort, if you solve them in the first instance, those sort of ideas have longevity. And as we always say, uh, if if you get the concept wrong, the whole building will be wrong forever. So we work very hard on getting that concept right. And I think that... That is something that, you know, takes a little while to learn, but that's that's probably the main message we try and get across to students, to work on that concept and get things as right as you can, you know, in a sensible way that might have some sort of longevity to it. Understanding a building type, understanding a brief is one thing. So if you everyone thinks they understand a house, but obviously a house is different for every family or for every individual that wants a house, but they have their own brief. But then you get different building types like art galleries or museums or multiple housing or... Hospitals. Hospitals or whatever. whatever. So so each type has a history. Each type has precedence, like the law, which you can study and observe. And But then once you have got the client's brief and have an understanding, then that brief is also a relationship to a context. And as Kerry said, it's looking beyond the site. And the context is something, it's the interplay of the brief and the context that is really, in a way, that leads you to evolve a concept or concepts, I mean, because there can be more than one, but concepts. And then you have to sort of choose and guide, you know, the client and everything to sort of, uh, why you might think one concept is better, one one way of, of approaching it might be better. So getting that right is fundamental. Then, of course, added to that is also how it's made, how it performs, etc., and how it will how it will last over time. Because uh, architecture is not really a fashion statement; it's something that has to work from cons- the consideration of all those factors to get to a point where. 20 years or 40 years down the track, you can look at that building or visit it and hopefully think that you made the right decisions. Mm. I know that we do that now. I mean, actually, you know, this is our 42nd year in practice and we still know clients living in projects that we designed for them 40 years ago. Wow. Yeah, I know. It sounds crazy, but that's, you know, but that's what, that's what happens. And it's really reassuring to go back there and look at it and go, well, you know, it's it's still valid, it's still working, and it, maybe it's even still desirable, hopefully. <laughs> Would you say that that's the most fulfilling part of being an architect? Absolutely. It's fantastic to go to projects that 
you have been involved with through a process with the client, with the builders, all the tradesmen, all the issues you have to deal with and getting it made on that piece of land and then going back to it when other things have changed, technologies, some cultural or social habits have changed and yet it's there and it's still working and it's been able to adapt and work with that, whether it's a public thing or a private thing. Mm. That's really, I think, something that makes you feel that you have contributed something. And that's, don't you think, Kerry? That's, yes. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's a project that kind of encapsulates all of these elements for you? No. Well, there, there are a whole series of projects, large and small, that probably are important to us for different reasons. And other projects where they may have been sold or they might have been torn down even for other reasons, not because the project had failed, but there are other forces where land becomes more valuable or governments have a change of agenda to what they had 20 years ago. And so some projects become redundant and is, is they're just not there. So that's sort of sad, but it's, that's reality, I suppose. Carrie, do you have a particular project that comes to mind when you think about... Oh, look, look, it's funny. You know, every project has things that you wish you had done better. And I think you have to learn from that, And but every new project will have something. But um, I, I am quite proud of GOMA because the public have we've you know we've had feedback from so many people that they love spending a day there and we've had feedback from the people that run the building the curators and they say it's got it gives them so much opportunity and then the artists we've had artists come up to us and thank us for creating something that they find inspiring but it's not overwhelming they can do what they want to do within it so you know I'm sort of quite proud of that. The, the actual built form, I, I go and look and I, I see things that were, weren't built well enough or whatever, but um, anyway, that's the burden of being an architect. But Docklands Library too, um, you know, we've had a lot of public and, and client feedback that that building has worked so well for them. People just love it and um, you know, we've heard that people run their businesses out of it. <laughs> they go and have the coffee, get the book and then use all of the equipment and they just love sitting in that building. And I think those are the, the things that make me uh, most happy with the things that we've done. But also there are various individual houses where, as I mentioned earlier, where we do go back to them and clients are still living in them and their lives have moved on and they've had children grow up and, and whatever and leave, but they're still there and I can't name them because there's so many, well, it's hard to name one above another, if you know what I mean, but that's really, that's really a nice thing to do, that the fact that you have made some dwelling that is able to sort of provide some positive experience for the people living in it over time. Mm. So I'd be correct in saying that it really is about the people and your clients that make being an architect so fulfilling? Well, it's always about the people, the occupants, and, and that, that's really, as I said, to improve the quality of people's lives. So you could be asked to design a table or 
upgrade it or turn a garage into a living room, which is things that we've done, you know. It's very small things. We just saw on the internet last night a house we designed for a wonderful client for $32,000 in the early 80s. That's for sale now for one over $1.3 million. Wow. And you sort of think, mm, wow, how about that? <laughs> no. It hardly had walls. It was just fly screen and <laughs> a bit of block work. And, and she was a wonderful client and she asked us to do this unusual concept of a house for her. Unfortunately, she's passed away, but the house sort of lives on. And it's been modified a bit, but nonetheless, the essence of it's still there. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's amazing to sort of see that and go, you know, if we knew that this was going to be happening, I don't know, does, does it make you think about any changes you would have made back then? I, you know what I mean? It's, sometimes your brain sort of kicks into these funny thoughts and you think, well... <laughs> I don't, I, sometimes you can't predict all those things, I suppose. Yeah. But I guess that comes back to like your point about longevity and these things being able to adapt and sustain themselves for a long period of time, right? Yeah, there were magic things about that site that still work mm. and that we designed the house to respond to and, and those, those natural elements are still there. So it's still... The essence of it is still in its in its being. Yeah, that sounds quite incredible. From your extensive experience in practice and in education, what advice would you give to individuals who are considering to pursue a career in architecture or start their architectural education? Yeah, well, I always say that choose the university that you can go to, you know, if you have that choice, but also try and get some work in a smaller practice to start with. The reason I say that is small practices tend to do smaller projects where you can be more involved with a team. You're not part of a huge team doing one aspect of a building. You you get involved in the, the whole process and you're more likely to go on site and learn from the builders and see the whole process. And b- because they do smaller projects, it's usually a smaller time frame and you might have the opportunity to, to see the process from the first lines on paper to, to somebody moving in. So I, I think that that is a, an incredible experience that you learn so much from. Gabriel Poole used to say to us, if you can design a house well, obviously, (laughs) you can pretty much design any building. So uh, I think that that is true. If you you can do that well, you can, you have an understanding then of of space, relationships, environment, etc. And you can interpret that into other building types. So, yep, I think that my advice to students would be to study and keep an open mind and look at travel and see things and um, have a, a try and get a really good job. <laughs> and the other thing is practice on relatives. You know, if you've got a relative, <laughs> if one wants an extension or something, <laughs> do it. <laughs> Sometimes relatives can be the worst because, because they don't necessarily take your advice because, you know, you're the little sister. But on the other hand, sometimes they can be, they can be um, really helpful, yeah. Client, client management you might learn too. <laughs> no, I think, I, think um, I mean, the thing about architecture is that there's so many things you can do. It's a great education because 
You could become an interior designer. You could go and make furniture. You can become a specification writer. Or you can go into the legal side of architecture and look at contracts. And I remember someone advising me when I was a young architect that I should do a law degree just in case, because, you know, if I go out of fashion, then I can become a legal expert. I thought, oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, I didn't do that. But anyway. But there's also... There's project management and there's urban design. and well, We know one architect who's majored in, in significant public buildings, master planning, and he's never designed a house in his life. And he's a fantastic architect. And then you get other architects that just basically really do houses as well. So, I mean, Kerry was talking about the crossover, and we decided to sort of make ours like a mixed business where we can sort of go from large to small and change things change our scale of thinking, especially when you get into the urban design areas that Kerry talked about because you can have an effect on a whole street or a whole external space by what you might do uh, with a building. I think, I think that the opportunities that architecture offers are incredible and it also enables you to even perhaps rethink those priorities or opportunities over time. You might spend time working in an interior design office for 10 years and then suddenly decide you wanted to do urban design or focus on education or something, you can make those changes. Mm. It's a broad education. Yeah. It seems like there are a lot of transferable skills that you learn in your architecture education and throughout practice that can be applied to different things. Yes. It's always challenging. And it's not. It's never a two and two or four. It's always your, your knowledge your skill, your intuition, your experience that has an opinion about something and then you have to actually convey that in a convincing way. I think the way we've done it is that we tend to do a lot of sketches and diagrams and reject them so that when clients ask, you know, why did you do that or have you thought about this, quite often we can say, well, hopefully, yes, we did that. We looked at it, but we decided it didn't work for these reasons, bang, bang, bang. So we try to cover that territory. We don't just sort of get an idea and just run with it. We do interrogate it a lot. Yeah, it seems like quite a rigorous process. Yeah, it is. Thank you so much for joining us today, Lindsay and Kerry, and for sharing your early experiences and learnings and your time with Gabriel Poole, as well as your perspectives and design philosophies when it comes to designing buildings and creating architecture. And thank you most significantly for your advice and sharing that with me and with future students. Can I add one more thing? Oh, yes, of course. (laughs) We're still learning. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, isn't it, Kerry? We're still learning. Every day. We never stop learning. We're still learning. There's a lot lot to learn. (laughs) That's what makes it so exciting, right? It'll never get boring. That's right. That's That's, that's one of the strange things about architecture is that you find many architects are working, you know, well late into their careers, which is sort of reassuring but a bit scary at times. Well, I I think that's a a good point to leave us um, for today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Nicole. Okay, thanks, Nicole. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our guests in this episode, Lindsay and Kerry Clare. Thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. It was great to hear about your experience in practice and education. We can't wait to see what you deliver next. 
Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produced podcasts by architecture fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. If you'd like to hear from some more amazing architects, you can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad, and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Sona production team was Nicole Mesquita-Mendez. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions, written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.